People are calling 2018 the year of the woman. Early in the year, the cover of Time magazine featured the faces of 48 women running for office across the nation. More women are running and winning than ever before. Well, I think women finally realize they don't need special qualifications to run for any office. They just have to have a desire to run and to win. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, how women are changing the face of government. Back in January, an unprecedented number of women arrived at the Virginia General Assembly to take their seats as delegates. To mark the event, we asked delegates Hala Ayala, Cheryl Turpin, and Don Adams to send us an audio postcard telling us what it was like to be part of the historic and exciting moment. This morning I walked into my room, my office, and seeing my name on the door, put the key in the door, opened it, still taking it all in. I'm actually here. This is actually happening. I've actually got elected to office, and today's the day. That dream is now a reality. Hi, this is Delegate uh, Cheryl Turpin from the city of Virginia Beach, and today I um, had the honor to be sworn in as one of the new delegates in the oldest legislative body in the nation. And I thought I was going to be rock solid. I thought I was going to be okay. But as soon as they play the sing the national anthem, and as soon as you take that oath of office, you become aware that you are now responsible to your constituents. And, you know, this is just an extraordinary moment in my life. Sitting in the House chamber today amongst a sea of diversity in the Democratic Party, sitting next to two Hispanic women, a young millennial African-American looking over my shoulder at a transgender woman, multiple gay men, men and women of color, Muslims, uh, Christians, Jewish Virginians. The emotion, the visceral emotion just overwhelmed me and I felt nothing but honor and gratitude and love and so much optimism for our future. In order, we heard from delegates Hala Ayala, Cheryl Turpin, and Don Adams. For those who've long studied women in politics, 2018 is a particularly intriguing time. Tony Michelle Travis is a professor of political science at George Mason University. I talked with her about what has changed to spur this moment and whether she thinks the tides will continue to turn toward change. Tony, women hold fewer than 20% of the seats in Congress, but in Democratic primaries, they're being nominated in record numbers across the country. What do you think accounts for the surge? Well, I think women finally realize they don't need special qualifications to run for any office. They just have to have a desire to run and to win. Trump's candidacy and presidency have shown that. I mean, he had never held office before. Eisenhower had never held public office before. 
you just have to run on a party ticket in order to to be in the game. Do you think women just sort of self-nominated and came forward? Or across the country are people very deliberately pushing them forward? No, no. They're self-nominating. And in the past, they waited to be asked to run. And that was a major drawback because the parties don't operate like that. They assume that you're going to be a civic activist, a part of the party, and move up and eventually decide to run. And these women just said, I'm running, and moved right into the, so to speak, stream of traffic on this. A fascinating difference this year is that women are more likely to have previous experience, especially ones running for higher office, Congress, governor. For instance, in the Senate races, 80% of the women running held elective office previously compared with just 22% of the men. Yes. Women have to do more to get to the same point as males in a political career. And uh, there's a concept called the escalator system that, oh, you have to have served in the state house, you have to have done this and done that before you can run or consider running for Congress. Men ignore that. They just jump in. I think when you're in the minority, to get into the game, so to speak, you're overqualified in many cases. I mean, if one wanted to look at race, that might be the same. But women have been the more prepared, the more experienced in many cases. And men just show up and say, you know, I'm a resident of this town, this state, I'm going to run. Is this just a blue wave nationally for women, or is it also among Republican women? I think less so among Republican women, but that isn't to say that that isn't going to happen also. Uh, the, The Democratic women are just leading at the moment, but I think this has opened up the whole political spectrum for all women. You know, in 2015, you were studying why women political candidates are not winning in Virginia. And then suddenly, last fall in 2017, you saw a complete reversal of fortune. Fifteen women were swept into the House of Delegates in Virginia. How could there have been suddenly, in such a short time span, such a reversal for female candidates? Well, on the Democratic side, certainly, uh, a number of them are going through something called Emerge Virginia, and Emerge is in several states across the country. And this is a opportunity for women to get training in terms of how to deal with the press, uh, how to raise money, how to give a public address or, or operate in a debate, primary basic skills that anyone running for public office needs. Many of the women don't have that. They have a very capable background in something else. And I think this has really made a difference in the women coming forward to win. Do you think in the Virginia House of Delegates, with so many women freshmen entering the halls of power, that anything has changed, subtly or no, in Virginia politics? Not yet. The The wheels of politics turn very slowly in Virginia. I looked up something about when women got the right to vote, 1920. Virginia passed that in 1952, that they thought women should be able to vote. So 
What I think we need, though, is is a cluster of women in the state house, Virginia or any other state, who are there for several years at a time. They've got to overlap. They've got to work together. And they've got to work to set their agenda on their priorities. And if you look at Virginia as an example again, we've sent four women to Congress. None of them have overlapped in their terms. So there was no power, you know, because they weren't there together at the same time. I wonder socially and culturally how the makeup of these political bodies that have traditionally been bastions of maleness are changing. So the women may not yet have um, legislative power in that traditional sense, but I saw, for instance, a picture of a woman delegate holding a very young child. You know, that alone, just seeing that is so different. Well, it really gives the the male member of the State House or Congress reason to pause because so many of them are advocates of the family. You know, we, we want to do what will help the family, right. be it taxation or be it education, uh, be it health. And the women are saying, yes, and we're part of that. You know, don't forget the mothers, the women, and the children. Looking nationally ahead to the November election, what do you expect to see for the women candidates who are running in the larger offices? One of the problems that women have to take very seriously is women do not vote for other women just because they're women. And so you cannot assume that just because of your gender or sex that all the women in your state in your community will come out for you. You have to give those people a reason to vote for you beyond identifying with you as the same sex. Uh, And for years, people have made that mistake. I think it was part of the mistake of Hillary, assuming women would just naturally vote for her. Donald Trump famously won a majority of white women's votes in 2016. That's correct. You have to do more than just show up and say, I'm your candidate and have people identify with you on the basis of same sex. Are women campaigning differently than comparable men do in these elected offices this election season? Well, I would bet that they go to different audiences. Many of the men have risen through civic association membership. So, for example, men may be at the Rotary. Women, to a great extent, and I certainly found this to be true of Virginia, have had past experience in League of Women Voters. So they've learned a set of skills there that they can use. But the, the audiences that are asking for them to come speak and where they choose to speak, I would assume are very different. Raising money is an everyday event, and it's very hard for many people, men and women, to ask other people for money. And I think those who are new to this political scene find it very difficult to call up friends and people they they have no idea who they are, cold calling, to ask them for money to support them, but they've got to be able to say why they're the better candidate, 
what your dollar is going to get for you, what their uh, political agenda is. And I think that's where we're going to need a lot of training for women. With so many women having won their primaries this election season, how much do you think the November elections will move the needle when it comes to women in Congress? Women have never been able to break 20% of the seats in Congress. Right. Well, that's that's important that we break that number, but then the, the next issue is which committees are they assigned to? And that's all important. Uh, years ago, we had a woman on Armed Services Committee, Schroeder. Uh, Elizabeth Holtzman of, of New York was on judiciary when Nixon was impeached. We've got to get to the more important committees that give those women visibility so that they can run for vice president and president, so that they can be deciding votes in foreign policy issues. And I, I think the women must think ahead, not just get into office, but then fight for the committees that are most relevant to their constituents. Have you had a chance to look more intimately at this first year for those 15 women swept into office in the Virginia General Assembly? They haven't been able to do much because the idea is once you're elected to the Virginia House of Delegates, you keep quiet for your first, if not your first two terms, and you go along with the party and the party caucus and its positions. Uh, even when Leslie Byrne was put in years ago, she was put in what's called Coffin's Corner. <laughs> they didn't expect her to say anything or to, to show any interest. Her role was to follow. So I would expect it would be two or three election cycles before women who were just elected really show their priorities and their burgeoning clout in the body. But it looks like we're not going back. Women have achieved some sort of critical mass in terms of going forward. We've achieved critical mass, but we've got to break down the old procedures and customary assumptions in a place like Virginia. I I think certainly the, the 13 colony states, Massachusetts, the East Coast states, operate on this idea of we've always done it that way, so that's how we must continue. So I think that the women are going to begin to say some of these procedures, habits, are outmoded. We, we can do better. We can use technology. We can write better laws and enforce the laws better. Virginia may be leading in showing that a very diverse group of women can be elected at the state level. Having elected its first Asian-American female, two Latinas, and continuously electing African-Americans so that the picture is changing very rapidly. Tony Michelle Travis is a professor of political science at George Mason University. Coming up next, what American women can learn from Iranian women.
As a 17-year-old, Fariba Parsa fled Iran to avoid becoming a political prisoner. Now she's an affiliated faculty member of Women and Gender Studies at George Mason University. And she's grooming the next generation of American women to run the world. Fariba, you were born in Iran and witnessed the Islamic Revolution. How old were you when that happened? I was 14 years old. And I can remember I went to ninth grade. The school was closed for four months. There are fire on the street. There are tanks and soldiers. And I was very scared because uh, thinking what's going to happen. So I was witness people who shot and killed. After the Islamic Revolution, uh, we went back to school Suddenly, I had to uh, cover my hair. I had to have whale. And there was so much politics uh, at the school. And at that time, I was only 14 years old, and I witnessed all these things. Was it sudden? Had your life been a certain way, and then in a matter of days or hours, it was all different? Yeah, days. <laughs> I used to go to school with it in ordinary clothes and I walk on the street with shorts. Uh, we went to the beach and had swing dress and I was my life in Iran is like a city in the US. <laughs> it was not so different. Our family was very Western. What about your mother and father? Had they been deeply political before all this happened? No. They were worried about me because um, I was interested in politics. They think it is so dangerous. I will be killed. I will maybe be in prison. So they asked me to just uh, stay home, be with my friends, not reading all these books or newspapers and interested in discussion. They didn't like it. What, What sort of occupation did your father have? And what was your family like? Did you have many brothers and sisters? Yeah, my father had a pharmacy. And my mom was uh, at home. I have two sisters and one brother. So the government used us students, young teenagers, for its own purpose. Every week we had to participate at the demonstrations that government had organized. We hadn't any choice. We couldn't say, no, I am just want to stay. I couldn't. We have to go. And wear a veil? Yes, yes. All of us trained and uh, used the gun. And they say to us, maybe U.S. Uh, attacked Iran, so we need all of you to protect the country. So I, yeah, at, at that time I was 15 years old and uh, my friends you know, at the same age. So we get training, school students get training in using gun. That was something I experienced when I was 15 years old in Iran. If there was so much repression and women were forced to completely cover and students were trained with guns, how did you dare be politically active during your high school years? You initiated a school magazine and wrote critical articles about the regime. Yeah, I was connected with university students. I have some friends from university, very excited for gender equality and uh, democracy. So I participate to some of their meeting. 
Ellen was the youngest one, fascinated what they said about um, gender equality and women's rights, human rights. So I read books and participated to this meeting with some friends, and I learned many things about um, democracy, how a country can be different. You know, it, it was not the end of the story. We could change it, and I believed that we can change the country. If we all work together, we can have an impact. So that's my belief from very young age that I believe that I can make change. I can make an impact. And you and your friends created an organization for women high school students, or tried to, right? Yeah. I studied about other countries that have a student organization. So there are some students really excited about this project, but it didn't end well because many of them get arrested. And I also, um, they, they called me to the office and say I couldn't continue at school because they knew my, my father and they want to be nice. So they didn't turn you in, but they said, you're out. Yes. When did you realize that your activism had gotten you into terrible trouble? Yeah, they began to arrest many organizations that uh, worked for gender equality, for women's organization, everywhere. You know, if, if they say any people who support this organization, so they arrest them. Even just high schoolers? Yeah. My parents were so worried, and they uh, every time I was just five minutes late from school, they were thinking I am maybe uh, arrested or in a prison. So their solution was to arrange a marriage for me with a husband. So I get children and I stay home and yeah. not be political active anymore. So they actually arranged a marriage for me. I was 17. Huh. It happened so fast. I uh, left Iran to India. My parents think it's good for me to just leave Iran. So I left Iran at age of 17. But the authorities still came to your house looking for you. Yeah, the Revolution Guard came to my parents' house. And my parents say, I'm not in Iran. I left to India and didn't believe it. They couldn't find me. And they arrested my sister. She was only 15 years old at that time. Did they think she was you? No, they think if they keep her... I come back. That must have been terrifying for your sister and your parents. What happened to her? Yeah, she was um, in prison for two weeks, three weeks. She, she was sick, and so she had to come home. But my parents sent her to some of our family to Germany. They didn't want she uh, be arrested, be in prison, or be killed. Just sent her somewhere away. You eventually moved to Denmark. Yeah, the plan was travel to Canada, maybe uh, apply for refugees in Canada. And we had a ticket to Canada, but it was uh, snow. And the pilot in (laughs) an airplane said, we land for 20 minutes in Copenhagen in Denmark. (laughs) Uh, we, We applied for asylum. You applied for asylum and Denmark took you in. Yes. And you stayed for 27 years. Yes, I stayed in Denmark. 
and became Danish citizen. And they did my also PhD. The other part of me was an activist. I was involved with National Council for Human Rights, National Council for Women, UNESCO, UN Association. And all my activities was focused on women's rights, gender equality, democracy. I learned a lot how a democratic country is, how it works, how uh, people has, have a voice. Everyone has a voice. Um, the reason I came to U.S., I applied for a postdoctoral fellowship, and I applied for several universities, including Harvard. I didn't actually believe that I could um, be chosen because it's the best university. But I was so lucky, and I got the literary congratulation. You are, you can come to uh, Harvard and uh, continue my studying. You have now started a pilot project for a program you call Well. So Well stands for Women's E-Learning in Leadership, and this the idea came in my mind. So e-learning. So if we use the new technology so we can connect with women from all of the world, you know, no matter which country they live. We share the same challenge. We say we share the same difficulties and we have this, the same dream. We have we want the same thing. So why not we work together? Why not we connect and support each other? Your goal is that these young women will pursue politics eventually. Why is the political realm so key for you? My understanding of politics is not only government, it's not only election, it's everything. You know, it, it can be in art, in uh, literature, media, business, everything, everything in our life. Are you excited by more women entering the political realm in America in the last year or two? Yeah, of course. That I think there is a women's movement. It's not only in the U.S. You have you can see in the Middle East, Asia, everywhere. You know the way we understand democracy. It's a government, according to Abraham Lincoln, the president of the U.S. Is the government for the people? of the people and by the people. So half of the people are women. How can we have a stable democracy without half of the people fully participate in public life? So it's not only politics, it's also business. The top 500 fortune companies in the US, the CEO of these companies, only 6% of them are women. 94% of men, so it's it's not equal in U.S. But of course, if you uh, compare U.S. with Iran and countries in the Middle East, of course, women have achieved so much more, but it's not finished. If we want a stable democracy, so we have to continue and work toward gender equality. Fariba Parsa is an affiliated faculty member of Women and Gender Studies at George Mason University. She's also founder and director of Women's E-Learning and Leadership. 
This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. A quick warning to listeners. Today we're talking about relationships between men and women. There's nothing explicit, but we do acknowledge the existence of sex. The classic rom-com, When Harry Met Sally, asked the question, can men and women be just friends? Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him, too. Pop culture will have you think that true friendships between men and women are rare, if not impossible. But even in early America, men and women managed to be just friends. We sometimes hear about the friendship between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. But what about his friendship with Abigail Adams, John's wife? Turns out she and Jefferson were close friends in their own right, with years of letters to prove it. Cassandra Good is the former associate editor of the papers of James Monroe at the University of Mary Washington. She's also the author of a book that examines friendships between men and women in early America. So I was first working on a project as an undergraduate student in college on manners and etiquette in early Washington, D.C. And to do that, I was reading a bunch of letters that had been published by a woman named Margaret Baird Smith. Her husband edited the newspaper in Washington for the fledgling Democratic Republicans, Jefferson's Party. And she met and became close friends with Jefferson when he was leaving Washington in March 1809. Margaret writes a letter to her sister describing going to the White House to the inauguration party and, quote, when I saw our dear and venerable Mr. Jefferson, my heart beat. When he saw me, he advanced from the crowd, took my hand affectionately and held it five or six minutes. Oh, gosh. Five or six minutes. Well, they probably were standing around talking to other people or talking to each other and just holding hands. This is not necessarily something particularly common. Uh, The fact that it was in public with a lot of other people around made that a little safer. But still, when I first saw this at 20 or 21, I thought, oh, I have discovered an affair. And I thought, this must be so juicy. Then I just discovered that people expressed their emotions and talked about friendship in ways that appear romantic to us today, but actually weren't. How had she first met him? So Margaret Baird Smith moved to Washington with her husband, Samuel Harrison Smith. Margaret's family had been Federalist, so she had been raised to hate Jefferson. This man comes to her house. She doesn't realize who it is. They're sitting chatting for a while. And she later describes of this meeting in 1800, I know not how it was, but there was something in his manner, his countenance, and his voice that at once unlocked my heart. And it wasn't until towards the end of this meeting that she realizes who it was and is kind of shocked. But she's sold. She buys into both liking Jefferson personally and agreeing with his policies. Were there many female friendships for Jefferson? Did he correspond with many women? 
Yes, he had a lot of female friends. Uh, when he went to Paris, he was recently widowed. This was in the 1780s. He's sent over as American ambassador. He meets a bunch of female salonniers, these women who have these intellectual enlightenment salons. And it is quite common in that setting for men and women to hang out together, become friends, flirt, even have affairs. Uh, And he keeps up friendships with several of these French women for years afterwards. And this is also where he first meets Abigail Adams. Huh. He met Abigail in Paris. Yes, he had already known John Adams for quite a long time, but Abigail had never met him. So she obviously knew about him through her husband. John and Thomas Jefferson had been friends. And when she arrives in Paris and they meet, they have a lot of common interests. They go to plays together. They both enjoy music. And I think intellectually they were well matched. The letters are you know, witty, affectionate, playful, uh, in ways that we might not expect. Do you think that her wit, grace, understanding of politics were particularly important to him? Can you tell he loved corresponding with her? Yes, and there's times where he needs to get information from John Adams when John is in London. And there are times where he's not getting what he needs And he'll ask Abigail, can you give me this information? And he actually says at one point after John has not been giving him the information he needs from London, please send me along the news. And he concludes, quote, de tout mon coeur, I'd rather receive it from you. So, you know, he's being a little flirtatious, maybe playful, but he knows that partially this is acceptable because John Adams is in on the friendship. Jefferson would send one letter to John and one to Abigail on the same day. And so he knew that John Adams was seeing these letters. And that, in fact, makes it safer if he's being flirtatious, that somebody else is in on this. There's nothing clandestine here. What about Washington, Franklin, and some of the others? Did they also have really interesting and notable friendships with women through letters? Yeah, I think we often think of George Washington as being this staid and stern figure. And even some people at the time described him that way. But he also really enjoyed having female friends and had multiple female friends. You can see in his letters, he is playful in letters with them, and they are playful back to him. And so we do see a different side of him in those friendships. His friendship with Annis Boudinot Stockton, for instance, Stockton was a New Jersey woman. uh, And during the American Revolution, Washington spent time with other officers at her home. And she had been writing poetry about him in praise of him and sent him some poems and apologized for still sending him all these poems praising him. And he writes back, no, it's really okay, but for punishment, you'll have to have dinner with me. (laughs) <laughs> he says it in much more formal language than that, but he is being playful. And some people have seen that letter and said, oh, is he flirting? Are they having an affair? No, this is how friends interacted with one another in this period. Was there an interesting letter that you think, aha, I think I've decoded what initially seemed very complex? Well, some of the letters that help with this are, in fact, letters where people say they're not sure what the rules are or say that they think that they're breaking a rule. And there's a lot of letters where men write to women and they're saying, I'm not quite sure I'm supposed to be writing to you because or I'm not sure how I'm supposed to open this letter. So here's an example. There's a gentleman named the Reverend Horace Holly. He's writing to a woman he met 
in Baltimore who had married Napoleon's brother, Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte. So this is 1818. He opens the letter without any dear so-and-so. You know, usually we'd see dear madam or dear Elizabeth, dear Mrs. Bonaparte, something like this at the beginning of a letter. And he just goes right in and says, I am quite at a loss to know how you would receive any one of these forms. And therefore, I have rejected them all and written none. He's saying, I don't know the proper way to do this. He doesn't know the proper way because, in fact, there are all these guides to letter writing in the period that tell you how to write a letter to a business partner, how to write a letter to a father when you've been a bad son, like really specific letters, but no model letters between friends of the opposite sex. That makes sense, given that letters were pretty much all you had. There weren't phone conversations, text, email. You would have to have these form guides to say, you know, here's the form for this. Fill in as needed. Yeah. And just like in personal interactions, there were a lot of rules of etiquette. And the idea is that a letter was supposed to be a substitute for conversation. And people talked about that in their letters. And sometimes, you know, one gentleman who wrote another female friend said, I'm not sure I'm supposed to write you, but if letters are supposed to be just like conversation and we can talk in person, why can't I write you a letter and have us have a conversation? Part of what we can see in these letters, too, is that women are able to push back if they're not happy with how they're being treated in ways that show these relationships are more egalitarian than any other relationship between a man and a woman at this time. So there's one example here. There's a woman, young woman named Eloise Payne living in New England, and she befriended a young minister who later became famous in the Unitarian Church and the Transcendentalist movement, William Ellery Channing. And she was trying to get a job as a school teacher, trying to make a living on her own. And he criticizes her at one point, saying that it sounds like what you're doing is too much about making money. And she is furious. And she writes this lengthy reply defending herself. She says, I did not look very sober at the passage in your letter, which covertly accused me of being guided chiefly by mercenary views. A perfect conviction that I did not deserve it preserved the composure of my features. That might sound really formal to us, but she was saying, I was so angry, I could barely keep myself together. I could spit on you. (laughs) (laughs) And she says, it is not an easy thing, my dear sir, for a young and solitary female to assert and maintain her own right, unsustained by friends whose duty and inclination equally lead them to shield her from injustice and censure. Again, this sounds formal, but what she's saying is, I need to make money for the rest of my family. What do you want me to do? You also have these exchanges between not men and women, but women writing to good friends or sisters and others about the nature of relationships with men. Yeah, so there's a letter between a woman named Elizabeth Peabody and her younger sister Mary. These Peabody women are quite remarkable women. They were living in New England. They were school teachers some of the time. Elizabeth Peabody befriended a man who later became a famous education reformer, Horace Mann. Mann had been recently widowed, and Elizabeth had described how he, quote, laid his head upon my bosom so that he could shed tears of grief, and at other times he sought comfort in her arms on the parlor couch. So Mary is out of town. Elizabeth writes about this particularly interesting conversation she has with him one evening that was, quote, full of feeling and affection. And they talked about, she says explicitly, the difference between love and friendship. 
And this was not abstract. She wanted to know where their relationship was. My friendship is a great comfort to him. I only wanted to be sure that he would never feel that I felt more than friendship for him in order that he might have no sense of responsibilities in receiving many kind offices. So basically what she's saying is, I don't want him to misunderstand that I'm letting him cry in my arms as romantic. She goes on to say that uh, Horace was quite happy to hear about this. He was relieved. Uh, He saw it as a friendship. And Elizabeth concluded from the discussion that, quote, however affectionate we may be, it is a brother's and sister's love on both sides. (laughs) So putting this in these family terms lets them continue their emotional intimacy without the intrusion of any kind of... Uh, desire or attraction, at least on the surface. It's fascinating that you were able to find these letters. Have you concluded whether American men and women of the founding era felt freer with each other because they were able to be in a society away from the strictures of European mores, or whether they were more stilted? They are separate from Europe, but in fact, they want to prove that they are more virtuous than Europe. Europeans in this period, and this doesn't apply to all, this is the really upper, upper echelons of society in France and in England are having affairs all over the place. Part of what's going on over there, but particularly in America, is people are saying this is why the French Revolution went bad, is that women were corrupting men by sleeping with them. That all these people having affairs, that is what corrupted their political system, and that's part of what is wrong with England's political system. The whole American experiment was based on this idea of Republican virtue, that you were going to put others before yourself, that you were going to be morally upright, and if people are going to elect leaders, they need to be virtuous enough to know who the right people are, and their leaders need to be virtuous enough to lead. So this question of virtue is very important, and it is very much tied to sexual virtue. Part of the issue with friendships in America, it's actually harder than in Europe to be friends with the opposite sex because you have to prove that this is a virtuous, pure relationship, that this is not one of these corrupt European forms. Cassandra Good is the former associate editor of the Papers of James Monroe at the University of Mary Washington. She's the author of Founding Friendships, Friendships Between Men and Women in the Early American Republic. Coming up next, what happens when good intentions aren't enough to stop sexism? Almost nobody starts a business or runs a company thinking, gee, how can I keep women out of this office? And yet, if you look at the numbers, women still face a lot of barriers at work. My next guest is Jennifer Meese. She's a communications professor at James Madison University, and she studies structural sexism and structural racism in the workplace. Well, it's a little bit different than what we typically think of. So when we think of racism and sexism, a lot of times what we want to do is sort of attribute that to individual people who don't like women or people who don't like people of a certain race. And no doubt that's a problem and it's something that society needs to address. But there's another issue at play here, too, which is that you can get a group of well-intentioned people together, and yet they will get together and they will still reproduce these systems. So I'm looking at the ways that 
what we think of as normal or just the way we do things around here actually sets some people up for success more easily than others. Give me an example of where you've seen these issues at play in workplaces that we might recognize, even though we can't really feel them maybe in our own offices. Yeah. So a great example of this is I was talking to my sister and my sister works as a a manager in a resort company. And she was working on some construction projects. Construction projects tend to be largely male dominated. She came to me and she said, you know, whoever says that women are all are gossipy in the office and whatnot. She said, men are exactly the same. But when men do it, it's called politics. <laughs> so that's a great example of just the way language frames different people who are doing the same thing in really different ways. So women who talk about each other in the office are engaging in gossip and cattiness, whereas men who do it are engaged in politics. Is there much of a problem with structural mm-hmm. sexism and structural racism in most work environments? Or is it very unusual? I think it's pretty pervasive in the sense that there are really subtle things that occur. And if we want to look for the evidence of it, all we have to do is look at uh, advancing careers, right? So if you look at all of our powerful positions, like executive positions, there just aren't as many people. It's still mostly white males in those really powerful executive types of positions. And if a company is trying to look at that and say, why is this happening here? What do you help them notice so that they can maybe work around some default attitudes? Well, you know, that's hard to say because it would it would depend on a particular organizational environment. Um, but the way I would start was I, you'd have to talk to the people and figure out exactly what they're experiencing in the organization. So what are the norms? What are your hiring practices? One of the things that we know about our assessments of people is that we are more attracted to people who we perceive to be like us. And so that can play into interviewing processes. So the further we get away from an interview, so if I interviewed somebody this morning and then I sit down at five o'clock to assess that person in an interview, because there's a time span there, my brain tends to lose some of the details of that interview over the day. And then this principle of, being attracted to people I perceive to be like me starts to have a stronger grip on my assessment of that person. But if I interview the person at 10 o'clock in the morning and then I sit down and I do a detailed assessment right after I interview them, then that whole principle of liking people who I perceive to be like me, it has a smaller effect because all the details of that interview are still fresh in my mind, so I'm not having to fill in the blanks with this sort of unconscious tendency to be attracted to people who are like me. So a real simple thing you could do is if you're interviewing candidates, don't interview 15 candidates and then assess them all at the end of the day. Interview one candidate, do a short assessment, interview the second candidate, do another short assessment, and then make sure you use those assessments to uh, decide who is the strongest candidate for your position. What advice do you have for women in the workplace? Is there anything they can do to help themselves? One of the things that we see is that men are more likely to promote themselves or apply for promotions when, say, there's a list of 10 criteria. They might look and say, "Eh, I meet half the criteria. I should just go ahead and apply and throw my hat in the ring. 
where women are more likely to look at that list of 10 criteria and say, darn, you know, I, I have eight of these things down really well, but I don't have the last two, so I'm not really <laughs> ready. You know, nobody is saying we don't want women to apply for this promotion, but there's kind of this difference in perspective about what does it mean to be ready for promotion? Another thing that we see is that women tend to use their networks for more social support and not as much for career advancement. So not quite as strategic in their professional networks. And so just having a a sense of how people use those things differently and what are possibilities for using those networks. What about the hiring scene? Are there Mm -hmm. tips you have or insights you have into what the barriers are and how to get around it? Women should negotiate. There's a negotiation disparity between men and women. So if we're looking at the role of a woman going into an interview, I think that's one thing that we can consider. To not think of it as you asking for something, but you demonstrating your ability to negotiate and do it as best, not only for yourself, but this is demonstrating that you'll be able to do that for your company in the future. Um, to also think about your negotiating as a move for a collective. So I'm negotiating not just on behalf of myself, but on behalf of my family or whatnot. Sometimes those little mental shifts can help women to negotiate uh, with less, dare I say guilt. I think women <laughs> almost feel bad when they um, negotiate. Yeah. You recently mm-hmm. wrote a blog entry on mm-hmm. something you call the likability principle. What is that? Well, a lot of people are familiar with it because Sheryl Sandberg did a TED Talk on it. And it's the idea that when women are successful and competent, we don't really like them. So we we judge them more harshly than we would a man. So a man who's successful and competent, we like him. He's a good leader. We want to work with him. Um, but women who have competent skills, we don't like as much. And so it was really interesting because when I started researching this for this blog post, what I found was this, and this really blew me away, right? Most of that research is based on hypothetical situations. So where they will tell people, imagine this situation, and then they'll put either a man or a woman, and then they'll ask them to assess it. And so women are judged more harshly than men, even though in this imaginary scenario, right? So there's a study done where they said, oh, this is all based on hypothetical. So let's ask people about their real bosses. And so they did this study of 60,000 people where they asked about their real bosses. And what they found was when people are actually asked to assess their own bosses, this likability penalty disappeared, which in some ways I was like, wow, that's great. So in real life, it doesn't happen. But then I was like, wait a minute. In all of these hypothetical situations... We continue in our imagination to actually think that powerful women are not likable. Jennifer Meese, it has been a joy talking with you. Thank you. It's been a joy talking to you as well. Jennifer Meese is a professor of communications at James Madison University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Elliot Majerzik, 
Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our intern is Adriana Gallo. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. You see me do me.